church, our Lord said, Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door of God. Que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean, and it is great to be back with you this week. Well, this week we're going to be diving back into A Father Who Keeps His Promises by Dr. Scott Hahn. We're going to pick up at Chapter 2, where we left off last time, entitled Creation, Covenant, and Cosmic Temple, God's Habitat for Humanity. We're not going to get through the entire chapter tonight, but we will discuss some of the key foundational issues that I think we face all the time. Is Genesis 1, is the creation narrative, is it fact or is it fiction? How does it square with things like evolution and creationism? Where do we fall as Catholics? What do we believe? What does the church teach? We're going to be touching on all of those. We won't get into in-depth studies on any of them, but we will discuss them in tonight's show. Well, I hope you've had a good week. I know I have been a very busy week as usual. But before we begin tonight's discussion, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory and praise to you, Almighty God. Father, we come before you to praise your holy name. We seek your wisdom. We seek your truth. And so we pray for the the grace of the Holy Spirit to come upon us tonight, to inspire us through study of your revelation, your revealed word, your tradition of the church that you have created and founded and set up for our sake, but for your glory. So we pray to dive deep into the discussion tonight and that you will just enlighten us with your wisdom and your grace. We seek all this in your mercy. We pray in the words that our Lord gave us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I almost failed to mention the song that brought us into the show was Thanks and Praise from the album Testify. That's John and Gotti. You can find more information and a link to his site on my site at www.catholichack.com. Com. Well, I don't know that if you've ever been faced with this issue or not, 
is Genesis 1 accurate? You know, the first time this hit me like a ton of bricks, I was in college and I was just going through my conversion. I just had my conversion experience and I was in a, a, like a web design class and I got hit by an atheist who just sort of caught me off guard and I really wasn't prepared for it. He made me feel like uh, almost foolish because we believed in the Bible and it just, just didn't square with modern science. And you know what? I spent that entire summer diving deep into the issue. I couldn't read enough on the, on the topic. But honestly, what I was reading was creationism. And so I started to buy into that argument, creationism. And it took some time before I started to see a more balanced approach. Why do I put it that way? Because one of the main topics right out of the gate in chapter two of Dr. Han's book deals with this problem. You see, we seem to find ourselves encountering two groups of people when we talk about Genesis chapter 1. We find ourselves either saying that the, that the Genesis 1 is literally true, meaning there were six literal 24-hour periods of creation. Or we find ourselves on the complete opposite side of the spectrum, which is Genesis 1 is complete fiction like all the other ancient cultures who had their their version of how the earth and people came into being, this was just another one of those types of stories. So what's the answer? Where do we fall in this spectrum as Catholics? I think it's very important for us to understand something. And one of the key principles that I want to set out on the table right away is St. Augustine in his, in his work on uh, Genesis and his study of Genesis, he actually says, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says basically that there aren't two truths. You see, truth is a person. It's Jesus Christ. He says to Pilate, all who seek truth hear my voice. He says to his disciples, I am the, the way, the truth, and the light. So we know that truth is a person, not some abstract concept, a person, Jesus Christ. St. Augustine says, there can't be two truths. There can't be a truth in nature and a truth in revelation. If they seem to contradict, St. Augustine says, then we're not doing our homework. We're not diving deep enough. We simply just do not understand the, the body of evidence sitting before us. And we should go back and work harder and study harder to see how they might fit together. Because truth cannot contradict itself. So if we see a truth in nature, in science, if you will, and we see a truth in scripture and they seem to contradict, we need to dive deeper and further our understanding because they ultimately cannot. It is impossible. And this is why the church has always said we support science. We don't, we don't hate science. We're not against science. It's not religion or science. That's, that's, a false, uh, that's a false problem. That, that, that's not the way it works because there, aren't more than, there is not one, more than one truth. So, where do we stand? Well, let's first take a look at the literal translation of the creationism type of argument. There were six literal days of creation. Now, the problem here is we have to get to what was intended by the author. That often is, is that the root of the problem when we're interpreting Scripture. We have to get to the root of the issue. 
did the author, in this case, we're going to say Moses, because that's the living tradition of the church, not to say that there weren't, as Scott Hahn says in this book, earlier um, sources or later edits before and after Moses, but the living tradition of the church says that Moses wrote the uh, the book of Genesis. So what did what did Moses intend with this creation account in Genesis chapter 1? That's the first goal. Did he intend for us to see six literal days? Well, the evidence doesn't suggest that, and I'll tell you, give you a couple of reasons why. Number one, to start the creation account, we don't even have the sun yet in the first couple of days. So how can time be elapsing when there aren't celestial bodies with which to rotate around one another, with which to create time and therefore six literal days? That's the first sort of obvious issue. But it's but more to the point. It's not the how that's being given to us in Genesis 1. It's the why and the what that's being given to us in Genesis chapter 1. Very critical uh, points that we need to sort of shift our focus away from the how. Because as Scott Hahn points out, and you can see this on page 39, Genesis 1 isn't about the how. First I did this, then I did this, then I did that. You know, at first I, I, I created dirt, and then that dirt I brought life, and blah, blah, blah. No, he actually doesn't, He get, the only place he gives sort of a how is actually in Job, Job 38, or actually uh, Job 38 and 41, where you can see it's more of the how. And ultimately, what does he tell Job there? Forget it, you're never going to get this. You weren't there when I created it. It is beyond you, so stop trying. Just have faith. So Genesis 1 is more about the why and the what than it is ever about the how. Very, very important. Also, we see in, in uh, sacred scripture, in, in the uh, second book of St. Peter's epistle, in chapter 3, verse 8, we're told, But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So to God, you know, could he have created all of the universe in six days? Absolutely. Could he have done it in six hours? Most certainly. Could he have done it in six seconds? No question. What about an instant? Absolutely. We don't question that. But did he is the question. We don't know. It's not for us to know. That's the message we're being told in Job. It's not for us to know. We just have to have faith and see the reasons why, not the methods how. So those are very important facts. Just to, and there's there's actually much more substantial arguments that can be made to show how uh, the creation creationist literal interpretation of Genesis one really is not um, it's not in keeping with the living interpretive tradition of the scriptures from the Catholic Church. Very important. But the church also, just so you know doesn't actually give a definite way to interpret Genesis 1. So Catholics, to some degree, are free to hold to one interpretation or over another, to some degree. But I will make this point, and this is, comes from John Martinoni. John Martinoni, he used, likes to use this analogy. If the scriptures were to use this statement, it was raining like cats and dogs, the creationists would think it was literally raining with cats and dogs falling from the sky. 
You see how kind of silly that sounds? And I'm not trying to make light of creationists because I myself was one, and I don't think that they're uh, simple people because they're not. Um, not at all. But we have to see through the literal words and to get to the intent of the author. What did the author intend us to understand? And in this case, what we're intended to understand was the why and the what, not the how. Now let's go to the other side of that perspective. The other side is, this is all myth. This is fiction. Adam and Eve weren't real people. Adam literally meant, you know, man could have meant something general like all mankind. I've heard this from the pulpit. I've heard this from Catholic priests and deacons all over the place. We hear that we are being told that this is fiction. Is that the case? Is Genesis fiction? Is it myth? In fact, Scott Hahn likes to point out that there were, there are uh, many ancient stories from ancient Near East cultures of creation, of how man came into existence. But he says, by and large, and I'll actually quote from the book here, page 41 of chapter 2 on A Father Who Keeps His Promises. He says, There's one problem with classifying Genesis as a myth. It doesn't fit the facts. A comparative reading of Genesis and other ancient tales of creation universally recognized to be mythical um, mythical as far as greater differences and and divergences rather than parallels and similarities. Boy, did I hack that sentence up. What he's saying is, you'll see if you compare these two, there, there are far more differences than there are similarities. In fact, he goes on to say, for instance, the ancient myths all describe the creation process in terms of war among the gods, with the winners forming the cosmos out of the carcasses of the losers. Likewise, the myths treat the sun, moon, and heavenly bodies as deities. Does Genesis do anything remotely like that? No. What do we see? We see God speaking creation into existence, not war with gods. Furthermore, before that, we see what? The Spirit of God hovering above the the waters. There is no war. There is no dead carcasses. There is none of this sort of, these elements that are common to these mythical tales in these other cultures. This one was clearly cut from a different cloth. And that is a very important point that you should remember when studying the Old Testament. Oftentimes, God uses and shows the Israelite people along their path, along salvation history. Look, he, he actually, he like, it's kind of like taking Adam by the ear and showing him around creation, making him name all the other animals, which we'll do in the, in the next segment of this uh, chapter, going into Genesis chapter 2. But it's kind of like that. He takes the people of Israel and says, see, look, look over there. Look at those people in that other culture. They offer their babies to a false god named Baal. I won't ask you to do that. No, instead of you offering your son to those false gods, I will offer my son for you. There's subtle differences between the people of Israel, the chosen people that he, he started with Adam and through the line of Shem all the way up to Abraham and then all through Moses and the Israelites. He shows them that they are set apart, that they are holy people designed for a purpose. They are different from their surroundings, even though there might be similarities. Now, was Adam and Eve fake? Were they uh, fictitious? I've, I've been told this many times. 
did Adam and Eve really exist? Because actually it's quite, quite critical for us to say, yes, Adam and Eve really existed. Why? Because of the doctrine of original sin, which our Lord himself affirms in the New Testament. If Adam and Eve didn't really exist, then there wasn't really a, a, a first um, sin. And we don't really have uh, original sin. So that would, like the whole... The whole, whole church would fall upon itself on this one issue because it's like a house of cards. If this, if this issue is, is true, if Adam and Eve weren't real, then everything else sort of crumbles because the church can't teach error because it is the church of God himself. It is the church of Jesus Christ that he founded upon the rock of St. Peter. This, isn't, this church doesn't belong to Pope Benedict XVI or to any of the bishops. This church belongs to Jesus. They are simply his ministers in his kingdom. Okay, now, there, were, there are basically two sort of uh, uh, theories when it comes to the, the folks that say Adam and Eve were, were fake. They basically say either there were other human beings, there was like a group of first parents you know, in reality, and, and they sort of generated the other human beings. And they call that polygenism. And Pope Pius Twelfth, in his encyclical letter, Humane Generis, paragraph 37, says this. When, however, there is a question of another con uh, conjugal opinion, namely poly polygenism, the children of the church by no means enjoy such liberty. For the faithful cannot embrace the, that opinion, which maintains either that after Adam there existed on this earth true men who did not take their origin through natural generation from him, as from the first parents of all, or that Adam represents a certain number of first parents. Now, it is in no way apparent how such an opinion can be reconciled that which the sources of revealed truth and the documents of the teaching authority of the church proposed with regard to original sin, which proceeds from a sin actually committed by an individual, Adam, in which through generation is passed unto all and is in everyone as his own. He says quite clearly here that the children of the church, that's you and me, the faithful, by no means enjoy such liberty. We cannot believe that either after Adam died, for example, there was people who popped up who had no relation to Adam whatsoever. That can't happen. Or that there was an initial group of individuals, humans, with which created the rest of the human race. That can't happen either. The church maintains that Adam and Eve did exist. They were real people. And we are their descendants and we inherited from them the doctrine of original sin. It's very important for us to keep that in mind. So, and actually, I'll post a link. There is a great article on Catholic Answers website that actually talks about this whole issue, and I'll post a link to that on my website at catholichack.com. So now, so we can't see Genesis 1 as being literally true like the cats and dogs argument. We don't look at it as six literal days because it's not about the how, it's about the what and the why. 
And we can't look at it as myth because it doesn't really it doesn't really reflect the same kind of mythology that existed in other Near, Near East cultures. And it also doesn't fit in with the, the teaching, the living tradition of the church, which states that Adam and Eve were real people and we are their descendants, which our Lord himself confirms in the New Testament, which St. Paul confirms by just calling Jesus the last Adam. So where do we go from here? Well, the next kind of big point that I want to bring out here gets it dives right into uh, the the account itself. It says that in the beginning, the earth was void. Actually, it was formless and it had no rulers in it. It was void. These are very important images for us to keep in our mind. But how did God? How did God create? Did he wave his finger and abracadabra? Or how did he do it? What are we told about the process? The, what we're told is he spoke it into existence. And I just want to point out for the next minute how powerful that is. That God spoke creation into existence, all the universe. He spoke it. God speaks and all creation not only listens, but it comes into being. Jesus spoke water into wine. Jesus spoke and multiplied the bread and the fishes. Jesus spoke and demons fled from people. Jesus speaks and people are healed. Jesus spoke and bread and wine became his body and his blood. Don't you think it's quite interesting that so many Catholics today question the doctrine of the real presence of our Lord in the, in the Eucharist? Why would we ever question the word of God himself when we are shown quite clearly at the very onset of divine sacred revelation written in the scriptures, passed on in living tradition, that when God speaks, it has power, real power. Did he not speak to the fig tree and the fig tree withered? That's very, very important. When God said, Jesus being the second person of the Blessed Trinity, when he said, this is my body, and when he said, this is the cup of my blood in the new covenant, why do we doubt him? Why do we doubt him? John chapter 6, he repeats himself over and over and over again. If you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you shall have no life within you. And I, if he says, if you do drink my blood, uh, drink my blood and eat my body, then you will have life within you and I will raise you up on the last day. Repeats himself over and over again. Jesus, being God himself, speaks this into creation. We should trust him. We should take him at his word. Very, very important for us to uh, understand that. But now, tahu wabahu. These are two Hebrew words that describe how creation was formless and empty. It was void and without shape. These are the two processes by which God goes after during the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. He goes around saying, okay, I need to shape creation, and then I need to fill it. There's two processes here. 
So I kind of think of, I look at the moon, I, look, I see the moon and it's sort of desolation. And I, Buzz Aldrin actually describes it that way. What I think he said, what divine or splendid desolation. I can't remember his exact words, but that's how he described the moon when he landed on the moon. And he was the second person on the moon from, uh, from Earth. And he, he describes it like that. So that's kind of what I think in my mind. The Holy Spirit hovering above the waters when this, this ball of just, you know, it's not very formed completely and there's no life. So God goes after forming it and then filling it full of its inhabitants. And actually on page 44 of chapter 2, you can actually see a diagram there that really explains this quite well. And that in the first three days of creation... God forms the earth and the cosmos. On day one, we have day and night, which ultimately creates time. On day two, we have the sea and the sky, which ultimately gives us the space, you know, in which to work. And day three, we have land and vegetation, which can help us bring about life. So the first three days, we have the realms created. Now, the next three days of creation will actually fill those realms. Think of the realms like buckets. And now we got to put something in those buckets. So on day four, we have the sun, the moon, and the stars created, which correspond to day one with day and night. On day five, we have the birds and the fish, which corresponds to day two with the sea and the sky. So we have birds inhabiting the, the, the sky, and we have fish inhabiting the waters. On day six, man and animals are created. And those, then man and animals, they, they inhabit the land and the vegetation. They have, their, they have their realm and their sustenance. This is now life teeming in creation. So the first six days of creation go together so perfectly. They fit the first three with the last three. They show us the why and the what. Not necessarily the how. It's not the recipe that's given to us here. Well, I created dirt. I brought a, I brought together X amount of chemicals and had a little reaction and then the poof, dirt was created. No, 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 no. This is the what and the why. Very important. Page 44. Check out that diagram. Actually, it's, you know, after the first three days, there's a quote here I want to make. It says, the three basic conditions for earthly existence were now complete, time, space, and life. Likewise, the three essential elements for human sustenance were also now in place, light, water, and food. Then it says on page 45, the Lord first created the structure in three days, then filled that structure with living beings. On the second three days, first the realms and then the rulers. Is this a mere coincidence? I don't think so. Now, so we see like that house, again, that diagram, it looks like a house, three floors on the bottom floor and are actually three rooms on the first floor and three rooms on the second floor topped by a roof. The roof would be the Sabbath day. And we're going to lead into that now. We only have a few minutes left in the show. What I really want to do is talk about really quickly how God made man in his image and likeness, male and female. He created them. That's what we're told in Genesis 1. Uh, verse 26. This is very important for us to, to contemplate here. The image of God. We, as human beings, 
are created in the image of God. Now, we live in a society, you and I both, where we are devalued as human beings. We are commodities to people. We have pornography, and we have just licentiousness, and we have greed and and just hate and anger surrounding us everywhere. We don't take care of the most needy, and we cater to the most rich, and we let governments run us and rule us and treat us like slaves. We are made in the image and likeness of God. This has value. It brings value to our life. Aristotle said, What is last in execution is first in intention. So in other words, God saved the best for last. What does it mean to have his image and likeness? Really quick. Let me just sum up here. First, because we are created in God's image, human nature possesses three essential qualities. The sanctity of human life, the dignity of human labor, and the sacredness of family love. This leads us into the next great event, the Sabbath, the nuptial covenant, a wedding. There at the beginning of time, which will correspond to a what? A wedding at the end of time in Revelation with the wedding feast of the Lamb. God creates a covenant with creation through nuptial bonds of man and woman who are made in the image and likeness of God, whose image is sacred, whose work is sacred, and whose value is immensely sacred from natural, for natural life, from conception to natural death. That is powerful. Well, that's going to do it for today's show. Boy, I, had to, I felt like I rushed that and just totally messed up all the quotes. What are you going to do? I hope you've enjoyed the show. Come back and visit us next week. Stop by the website www.catholichack.com for more information, show notes, check out the video. You can send me an email at catholichack at gmail.com. Love to hear back from you. Please leave me a review on iTunes. I need your help there. Well, until next time, may God bless you. From the Catholic Underground.